a recent Middle East heat wave, these Israeli fitness fanatics are competing in a marathon cycle contest right outside Jerusalem's ancient Jaffa Gate. They're peddling furiously day and night to win prizes. Well, here at the Jerusalem Channel, we're also peddling as fast as we can, figuratively speaking, to keep up with the ever-expanding demand to watch our video teachings about the Holy Land, Israel and prophecy, and the Hebrew roots of our faith. With our recently added free mobile app, viewers around the world can watch and listen on their mobile phones and tablets. But all this video streaming comes at a price. Whether you're talking about megabytes, gigabytes, or even terabytes to provide high quality video to a global audience. That's why we need your help to meet a challenge of $30,000. With that goal, we plan to expand into several new video streams, specializing in topics that will be a blessing to you. So please help us to run the race with your gift. Just click the donate button on our website to give by credit or debit card. Or write to us at Box 2768, Stanton, Virginia, zip code 24402, where American donors can receive a tax-deductible acknowledgement. And in the UK, we can claim gift aid on your donation. Send it to Box 109, Hereford, HR4, 9XR, England. Thanks for being a part of the Jerusalem Channel Outreach. The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. If you want to make your case and prove a point, there's no better or more reliable resource than this Holy Bible. And at a recent cabinet meeting, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, read from the Hebrew Bible to prove that the tomb of the Jewish patriarchs in the ancient city of Hebron is in fact a preeminently Jewish site. The Bible is indeed the greatest record to ancient transactions and property deeds in the Holy Land. Hello, I'm Christine Darick. Recently, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu read passages from the Bible during his weekly cabinet meeting in Jerusalem in order to completely demolish a resolution that was passed by the United Nations Education, Scientific and Cultural Organization, better known as UNESCO. In the face of historical facts, UNESCO's World Heritage Committee had the audacity to designate the tomb of the patriarchs in the ancient biblical city of Hebron as a Palestinian heritage site. But Hebron is not only the burial place of the founders of the Jewish nation, it's where Israel's greatest king, David, was crowned king by the people. Well, UNESCO's snub of Israel in favor of the Palestinians is a case of the UN trying to rewrite history. Because when you look at the names of the people who are buried at the big shrine in Hebron, they are the main patriarchs and matriarchs 
of the Hebrew nation. Well-known names such as Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and his wife Rebecca, and Jacob and his first wife Leah. Well, may they all rest in peace, and may their heritage not be disturbed. You see, the Arab people also have been given promises by God, but their patriarchs, such as Ishmael, aren't buried in this very controversial shrine. Well, the Prime Minister read from Genesis chapter 23, which is entitled in my book, The Death of Sarah. And I'm going to read passages to it, uh, from it, because we all need to know the history of the Jewish people. And after all, their history is our biblical history. And without the Jewish people, the church would not even be able to exist. So it says that Sarah lived to be 127 years old. And it says she died at Kiryat Araba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And the Jewish people today, after they have returned, have named an area called Kiryat Araba. And Abraham went to mourn for his wife, Sarah, and to weep. And then he spoke to the people in the land and he said, after all, I'm a foreigner and a stranger among you, so sell me some property for a burial site here so that I can bury my dead. And the local people replied to him, Sir, you are a mighty prince among us, so pick out the choicest of our tombs for your dead, and don't refuse any of us to take one of our tombs for burying your dead. But Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, as was the custom of the day. And he said, if you're willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with a person named Ephron, the son of Zohar, on my behalf, so that he will sell me, Abraham and his eye on, the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. So ask this Ephron to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. So this man, Ephron, he heard about this and he came to the gate of the city and he said, no, my Lord, recognizing the greatness of Abraham. He said, listen to me, I will give you the field and I will give you the cave of Machpelah. I give it to you in the presence of all the people. Go and bury your dead. But again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and he said, no, I'm going to pay the full price of the field, because he wanted it to be a legal transaction, you see. And so Ephraim answered, listen to me, my Lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between you and me? Go bury your dead. But Abraham agreed to Ephraim's terms and weighed out the price that he had named in the hearing of all the people, 400 shekels of silver, so that it would be a forever legal transaction. So Ephron's field in Machpelah, near Mamre, there was a tree of Mamre there, both the field and the cave of all of the borders were deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the people in the land. And then only afterwards did Abraham bury his wife in the cave of Machpelah, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave were deeded to Abraham by the local people 
and the land belong to him. And this took place 3,800 years ago. Now, after reading this Bible passage in Genesis, Israel's prime minister declared that the connection between the Jewish people in Hebron and the tomb of the patriarchs is one of purchase and of history, which may be without parallel in the history of the peoples of the world. But of course, this didn't prevent the UNESCO World Heritage Committee from passing what Netanyahu called yet another delusional resolution, which determined that the famous tomb of the patriarchs, the same cave of Machpelah, is today to be considered a what? Palestinian heritage site? Netanyahu explained that in wake of this resolution, he has decided to cut an additional $1 million from Israel's UN membership dues and transfer the funds instead towards the establishment of the Museum of the Heritage of the Jewish People in Kiryat Arba, the area of Hebron. The money will also serve additional heritage initiatives, he said, related to Hebron. Well, on top of that, UNESCO had previously passed a Muslim-sponsored resolution denying the Jewish connection to Jerusalem and the Old City. At that time, Israel also reduced its UN dues. Senior Israeli officials strongly condemned that recent resolution passed by UNESCO's World Heritage Committee, labeling Israel as an occupying power in Jewish Jerusalem. Nothing is more disgraceful than UNESCO declaring the world's only Jewish state the occupier of the Western Wall in Jerusalem's old city, according to Israeli UN Ambassador Danny Danan, shortly after UNESCO's resolution. Danan toured the city of David in the old city with UN ambassadors from around the world as he explained the deep and ancient connection between the Jewish people and the holiest sites of Israel. And Netanyahu has instructed that procedures be completed for the construction of a new center that will display the historical and archaeological findings for the city of David. This new museum in the city of David will put the emphasis upon the Jewish people's ancient history in Jerusalem. The world needs to know. Netanyahu said, it will be an impressive structure with extensive convincing displays. So the entire world will be able to see the truth. And he said the first visitors who will be invited will of course be UNESCO and UN delegations. Well, the UNESCO resolution directly contradicts the many facts on the ground. The Israeli government views the move by UNESCO as an attempt to eliminate the Jewish people's millennia-long connection to these ancient biblical sites where the founders of the Jewish religion are buried. And so, as current events unfold, the world is being brought back to the question, to whom does the Holy Land belong? The Jewish connection to the land of Israel dates back almost 4,000 years and began when God told Abraham to leave his homeland, Ur of the Chaldees, and go to a land that God himself would show him. 
By faith, Abraham picked up his roots and abandoned his home and community in obedience to God. But he was given a promise by God for following him. In Genesis chapter 12, God said, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, God said, and him who curses you, I will curse. And by you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then in Genesis 15, 18, God promised Abraham that he and his descendants would inherit the land of Israel as an eternal possession. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. And God established an everlasting covenant with Abraham. And this covenant involved two things. It involved both a seed, progeny, and a land. Abraham was to have a specific son, and through the progeny of this son, God would establish a great nation. This nation would be the channel through which God would send the Savior of the world, King Messiah, and bless all the Gentile nations. This nation, through Abraham, was to be established in a tract of land in the Middle East within certain specified borders. And that land was the land of Canaan, which is also known as Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, Zion, Judah, and simply it's known as Haaretz, meaning the land. It's interesting to note that the Hebrew verb used in the scriptures for God bequeathing the land is natati, meaning I have given. This is in the past tense. This implies that God had already given the land to the Jews at some earlier time, even from eternity past. The whole problem in the Middle East today stems from one central controversy, the controversy of Zion, and has to do with this Abrahamic covenant. It all has to do with how the descendants of the two sons of Abraham relate to and view this land covenant. Well, the Jewish people see themselves as the chosen ones, but the Muslims believe the son of promise was not Isaac, but Ishmael. The Bible is clear on the subject, but Islamic holy books contradict the Bible on this score. For example, the Muslims see Abraham offering Ishmael instead of Isaac as the sacrifice mentioned in Genesis chapter 22. The Muslims view their holy book as a continued and final revelation through their prophet. The Muslims would see the Jewish claim to the land as based on what they have been taught is corrupted scripture. In short, the Muslims claim that the Jewish title deed to the land is invalid. And the reemergence of a Jewish state in the land of the Abrahamic covenant has infuriated and even contradicted the Muslims' worldview. But rabbinic commentators suggest that God had, in fact, set aside the land of Israel for his people at the time of creation, and God had it in mind from the very beginning. But this is not to say that God forgot the descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's first son, who was conceived by the bondwoman Hagar, only in the permissive will of God. 
Ishmael was not the son of promise. The son of Sarah was to be the son of promise. But nevertheless, God also made a covenant with Ishmael to make him a great nation. Whereas the land of Israel was given as a divine promise specifically to the Jewish people. Especially Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives, Sarah, Rebekah, Rachel, and Leah, all of whom are buried in the disputed biblical city of Hebron except for Rachel. She was buried near Bethlehem because she died in childbirth while Jacob and his clan were on the move. The world needs to take note of the fact that for the past three millennia, there has always been a Jewish presence in the Holy Land. Even though they were expelled from the land, God promised that he would bring them back. And some even stayed in the land during the times of diaspora. The land of the Bible is why Israel is at the very core of Jewish identity. The psalmist says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. If UNESCO or any other leader tried to deny, challenge, or repudiate the link between the Jews and the land of Israel, they're arguing with God himself and they're defying his word. In order to fulfill their vow never to forget Jerusalem and the land of Israel and the holy temple during their exile, the Jewish people have kept the theme of Israel going in every aspect of their prayer and daily life. For example, Jews everywhere face toward Israel, towards Jerusalem when reciting their daily prayers. A traditional part of the standard Jewish blessing of meals is a prayer for the return to Zion. And at the Passover Seder meal, the most important meal throughout the year, the conclusion has always been the fervent hope and exclamation, next year in Jerusalem. Indeed, the themes of the restoration of Israel and the ingathering of the exiles are at the heart of all Jewish prayers for redemption and for the coming of the Messiah. That's why it's customary for the bridegroom at Jewish weddings to break a glass under his feet. Why does the bridegroom stomp on a glass? Well, it's a solemn reminder to everybody celebrating the happy occasion, nevertheless, of the tragic destruction of the first and second temples and of the Jewish exile from Jerusalem, resulting with an annual day of fasting and mourning called Tisha B'Av. Through these customs and rituals, the Jewish people have remembered their heritage and also demonstrated their belief and faith in God's promises to restore them back to the land. Did you know that the Jewish people believe that the people who decide to cast their lot with them and pray for the peace of Jerusalem and the welfare of its inhabitants, as Psalm 122 commands us to do, they, these people, will be rewarded by God with prosperity and abundant blessings. But when you study the Bible, you learn that the land of Israel is more than just the homeland of the Jewish people. More importantly, we learn that the Holy Land is considered by God to be His land, the place where His divine providence, His glory, is especially to be manifested. 
You see, there's a lot of talk these days in charismatic and evangelical circles about the glory of God and a hunger for the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you watch certain TV programs, they offer you to buy CDs on how to tap into the glory of God and so forth. But did you know a trip to Israel is one way to tap into the glory of God? The glory of God is especially associated with the land of Israel. You see, Deuteronomy eleven twelve informs us that the eyes of the Lord are always upon this land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Isn't that amazing? 365 days out of the year, God especially watches the Holy Land. And what happens? That's one reason why I never like to be outside of the land for too long. Because by the grace of God, I've received the revelation that we're told in the Bible that God has a special and peculiar fondness for the land of Israel. And if you crave the presence of God, you will discern his presence in this land. The Torah informs us that in God's eyes, the Holy Land is a very good and special land and a blessed land. In fact, in Ezekiel 26, God even says, I took a solemn oath that I would bring the children of Israel out of Egypt to a land that I had chosen and picked out for them, a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the best, the most beautiful of all the lands in the world. There is no doubt that there is an anointing upon this land, an anointing of the glory of God in the very atmosphere. In fact, I find it fascinating that the rabbis say that, according to Jewish tradition, the very atmosphere of Israel makes one wiser. How could they say that? Well, they can only say that if indeed the presence and glory of the Lord are hovering in the atmosphere. And because of these realities about God, His presence, His will over who lives in the land, the rabbis taught that the soil itself would stubbornly refuse to bear fruit unless the Jews, the land's natural caretakers for whom it was created, dwelled in the land and cultivated the soil. In fact, history, whether you like it or not, does corroborate this notion. It's a well-known fact that American writer Mark Twain visited Israel in 1867. And Mark Twain published his impressions in his book entitled Innocence Abroad. He described the Holy Land as a desolate country. He said it was devoid of both vegetation and human population. He said, quote, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds. He said it's a silent, mournful expanse. He used the words, a desolation. He said, we never saw a human being on the whole route. We never saw hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. Only until waves of immigrating and incredibly hardworking Jewish Zionists in the mid-19th century began to drain the swamps 
plant vineyards and trees. Only then did the land respond to its rightful owners. Only then did the land seem to be willing to blossom and give forth its produce. In fact, Isaiah 51.3 prophesies, For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort her waste places and will make her wilderness like Eden. And this is happening, hallelujah, before our eyes in our lifetime. Now this whole controversy over to whom the land belongs is all a family feud that resulted from Abraham's and Sarah's lapse of faith, producing a dysfunctional family, as I've pointed out many times in these programs, by having Ishmael born instead of waiting on God for Isaac. In the book of Genesis, we discover all the types and shadows of the history of Israel, as well as the gospel of Messiah. And I find this fascinating that chapter 21 of Genesis concerns the birth of Isaac. Chapter 22 is the account of the offering up of Isaac by Abraham on Mount Moriah. Chapter 23, which I mentioned earlier, is about the death of Sarah. And in chapter 24, Isaac is comforted with his mother's death by having a bride. And in chapter 25, Abraham remarries, and there's the death of Ishmael. Now, what do the theologians say that these events typify? Well, the miraculous birth of Isaac typifies the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, which was miraculous. And the offering of Isaac upon a wooden altar typifies the offering of the Messiah, God's son, upon the cross. In Genesis 22, when Abraham obeys God to offer up his son Isaac, there's a vicarious sacrifice. A ram that was caught in the thicket dies instead in the place of Isaac. And that's the antitype of the Lamb of God, Jesus, who died in our place taking the consequences of our sins upon his own body on the cross. Now, theologians go on to say, and this is infinitely fascinating, that the death of Sarah typifies the temporary setting aside of Israel following the events of Jesus' passion and atoning death. You see, Israel was and is the wife of Jehovah, although Israel was temporarily divorced due to her sins. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, died following the vicarious offering of Abraham's son. But Israel, the wife of Jehovah, was only temporarily set aside following the offering of God's son. Meanwhile, who does the bride of Isaac typify? Isaac's bride, Rebekah, typifies the bride of Messiah which is presently being called out from all the nations. Abraham sent his faithful servant into a far country to obtain a bride for Isaac. And that servant, Eliezer, typifies the Holy Spirit in finding the bride for Isaac. God has indeed sent the Holy Spirit into a far country, into many countries, to obtain a bride for Jesus. Now, the remarriage of Abraham is said to typify the time in the future when God will restore Israel to her rightful place in the earth. After the bride of the Messiah has been called out, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come into the church, 
Then God's wife will be saved. All Israel shall be saved. And that's what Romans 11, 25, and 26 teaches. Israel will be restored to her former position because God is a covenant-keeping God and husband. The nation of Israel will be cleansed and God will once again take Israel as his wife. Aren't you glad you're living in these times to begin to see these things about to come to pass? The bride of the Messiah is being brought to completion and God will once again be reconciled with his wife Israel. That's why we must continue to be intercessors and faithful watchmen upon the walls of Jerusalem. And we watchers can encourage one another and stay in touch through social media and through our website at exploits.tv. In fact, I'd like to invite you to click online to receive our electronic newsletter, Exploits. And at our website, all of our previous videos are available for viewing around the clock. And we have news on end time topics and prayer points. And you can also download our free Jerusalem Channel app from your favorite app store so you can watch our videos on your mobile phones or tablets. By the way, our app offers daily Bible readings and gives details of our upcoming events. And so, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dark, Maranatha, and Shalom.